God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform He plants his footsteps in the sea And rides upon the storm Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will Take courage now, you fearful saints The clouds you so much dread are big with and shall break in blessings on your head And I will trust the hands that made the starry heavens And I will trust the wounds of Calvary and I will trust Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour the bud may have a bit. Sweet will be the flower I will trust The hands that made the starry heavens And I will trust The wounds of Calvary And I will trust
Just uh, for those of you here in the building, uh, when this service is over, we'll sort out the teams for the snowball fight. Uh, let's take opposite ends of the car park and we'll work it out from there. I'm joking, of course. We're not going to do that. We're going to stand up when you're ready to leave and then move directly to the exit, keeping a two meter distance from others. And then just to let you know also that we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. online this time only. That's followed by coffee time, which is also online. And then just to say thank you to everyone who contributed to the gift we're giving to Taste. There's still uh, opportunity to give. This is towards the drilling rig that will enable Taste to take up the increased opportunities they have to provide clean water. So we're still keeping that open at the moment. And if you want to give and haven't already done so, the details about that are in this week's prayer email. And if you missed the interview with Ben last week, I encourage you to go back to the video later and have a listen to it. Uh, it gives a good introduction to taste and the new developments. It's near the start of last Sunday's uh, morning service, the video of that. Often we begin by bringing our praise to God when we uh, come to worship Him. We praise Him for who He is and what He has done. But this morning we're going to start with the song of desperation. It does praise God for what He has done, but of all the songs that we sing, this is one of the most honest about our own waywardness and the need for God to keep working in our hearts. There's one word in the song which might not be familiar to us. It's the word Ebenezer, which is actually the name of a place in the Old Testament. It was a place where the Lord delivered Israel. And the prophet Samuel then called the place Ebenezer, because Ebenezer means, thus far has the Lord helped us. That place reminded Israel of what God had done for them. And it's good for us to remember what he's done for us even as we ask him to keep on working in our lives. So as the musicians lead us in this, let's thank God and let's also ask him to take a fresh hold on our hearts as we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Mercy never ceasing. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we admit that we are ashamed of how easily we can forget your goodness, how easily we can turn away from you. It frightens us sometimes to realize how easily we wander from your word and your instruction, how easily we put our trust in other things, how easily we follow other wisdom. But even as we admit that we are prone to wander, we remember your faithfulness, your power to keep us and bring us safely home. So yes, we do feel the challenge of staying close to you and following you. And we also take heart because you have brought us this far and we trust you to take us the rest of the way. This morning, will you show us again what a privilege it is to be your children, rescued from destruction and headed for your eternal kingdom. We know there are many needs and concerns within our fellowship. We pray particularly for the Gordon family as they mourn the death of Lindsay's mother. Father, we ask you to comfort them with your care and your peace. And we pray this for all those in our church family who are facing sadness and loss today of one kind or another. Will you lift them up? Help them stand on the truth of your word and all of its promises. Amen. We're going to have a reading now from Matthew's Gospel. This is a parable of Jesus, and then uh, we're going to follow on and read the explanation that Jesus gives. It's Matthew 13, uh, beginning at verse 24, and then we're going to skip a few verses and read the uh, explanation after that. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weed amongst the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burnt, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Verse 36.
Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear.
This is our third week looking at Peter's second letter, and it's important to remember this is a letter. It's not a series of disjointed thoughts that Peter's just thrown out at random. Peter is going somewhere with what he says. He's building on what he has said before. It's easy for you and me to miss that because we only look at part of the letter each week. But to get the most out of this, we have to keep in mind what Peter has already told us. And in chapter 1, he told us God has given us a great gift, the gift of faith in Jesus. And that gift of faith in Jesus includes divine power to live like Jesus. The Christian life is not a miserable struggle to try and be something we're not. In 1782, when the United States Congress chose a bird as the national symbol of America, they chose the bald eagle. But Benjamin Franklin at that time said they should have chosen the turkey. Benjamin Franklin thought the turkey was a much better representative of his country and its people. You can make of that what you want. But the Apostle Peter tells us that as Christians, we are not turkeys trying to turn ourselves into majestic eagles. It's not like that. The amazing truth is that God has done a work of new creation in us. He has given us new hearts. He has put a new spirit in us. We might still look like turkeys, but we are eagles at heart. And in the power God has given us, we can begin to look more like the eagles we are. One day, we will fully display the likeness of Christ. And until then, Peter said, it is our lifelong responsibility to work hard at showing more of the likeness of Christ in our lives. Progress might be slow, we all know that and the reality of that, but progress is possible. That is God's gift to us. And we must be committed to making progress. And crucial to that, Peter said, crucial to living the Christian life is that we trust God's word. At the end of chapter 1, Peter gave us reasons for accepting the Old and New Testaments of the Bible as a truthful message from God. He told us what we read in the Bible are not cleverly devised stories. The New Testament is full of eyewitness testimony. And all scripture is the product, not of the human will, but of God's will. What we read in scripture, Peter said, is not the prophet's own interpretation of things. No, the writers of scripture, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we saw how in the Old Testament's case, that divine authorship is borne out by the way the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Bible is the truth. Peter has taken the time to underline that for us because he knows the truth is going to be challenged. Whether we live in the first century or the 21st, the truth of God's word is going to be called into question. And so every day, you and I have a choice to make. Are we going to stick with God's word, trusting it and living according to it, 
Or are we going to abandon God's word and try to build our life on something else? That's the background to what we're going to read this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll read from verse 1 down to the middle of verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. This is God's Word. And it tells us we have one choice to make. And in order to make the right choice, we have to keep in mind two futures. We've already mentioned what the choice is. Are we going to stick with God's word, trusting it and living according to it? Or are we going to abandon God's word and try to build our life on something else? We'll think about the two futures a little later on. But Peter starts by being very open with us about the choice we have to make. In verses 1 and 3, he warns us that sticking with the truth is not easy. We've already reminded ourselves how chapter 1 ended. It ended with reasons to accept Scripture as true. The Bible is completely reliable, Peter told us. The prophets who gave us Scripture spoke from God. But, Peter says, let's realize that word from God was not the only word there was at the time. Here in verse 1 he says, there were also false prophets among the people. God's word has always had competition. There have always been people who oppose it and offer alternatives to it. And we find one example of that in the book of 1 Kings. 
It's worth hearing about because it helps us see why God's word will always be challenged. At the start of 1 Kings chapter 22, King Ahab of Israel wants to attack the Arameans. And he asks for help from his neighbor, King Jehoshaphat of Judah. King Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, well, let's first seek the counsel of the Lord before we do anything. Jehoshaphat knew just because he and Ahab thought something was a good idea, that didn't mean it was a good idea. So Jehoshaphat says, let's ask for guidance from the Lord. What Ahab does at that point is he brings out his prophets. The writer of Kings says there was about 400 of them. And Ahab asks his prophets, shall I go to war or not? And the prophets say, oh yes, go. The Lord will give you victory. But Jehoshaphat isn't quite satisfied with that. And he asks Ahab, isn't there a prophet of the Lord we can speak to? Ahab says, well, yes, there is. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. But to please Jehoshaphat, Ahab reluctantly brings in the prophet of the Lord. The prophet's name is Micaiah. And as he's being brought to Ahab, one of Ahab's men says to Micaiah, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. So let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably to the king. That's amazing. The man says, here in the king's court, we're not interested in hearing what's true. We want to hear what we want to hear. Just tell us what we want to hear. But Micaiah is a true prophet and he stands in front of the king and delivers the truth from God, which happens to be that Ahab will be killed in the forthcoming battle. That truth, as you can appreciate, is not popular in the king's court. It earns Micaiah a slap in the face, followed by time in prison. The word of the Lord was not wanted in Ahab's court. But that didn't stop it being true. Ahab did die in the battle. And that one incident illustrates pretty nicely a couple of timeless realities. It illustrates that the truth of God's word always has competition. And it illustrates the truth of God's word is generally not popular. And that means sticking with God's word is not easy. In Micaiah's case, there were 400 prophets saying the opposite of what Micaiah said. It wasn't easy for Micaiah or any of the other true Old Testament prophets. It wasn't easy for the New Testament apostles. And it's still not easy today. That's why Peter says in verse 1, in Old Testament times, there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And you'll notice, Peter doesn't go into detail here about what they teach. He leaves it pretty open-ended. Destructive heresies means anything that's contrary to Scripture. And often that will involve a denial of who Jesus is, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, 
But even that is pretty open-ended in terms of what it might involve. So Peter is not trying to catalog every example of false teaching. He's simply telling us to expect false teaching. The truth of Scripture is going to be challenged. And the challenge will take different forms depending on when and where you and I live. But the point is we are to expect challenges. We're not to be surprised by them. And then Peter shows why the truth will always be challenged. Why sticking with the truth is not easy. It's not easy because lies are convenient. In verse 2, speaking about those who teach lies, Peter says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Now we would expect Peter to say, wouldn't we, many will follow their teaching because they're teachers. But Peter says, many will follow their conduct. In other words, the teaching we accept and the way that we live go together. That's why sticking with the truth of God's word is hard. That's why it's often unpopular. While lies are convenient and often very popular. Notice Peter says, many will follow the false teachers. Now we might wonder, if scripture is true, why is Peter so sure that many will abandon it? Well, the answer is, Scripture often goes against what we want. It is inconvenient. But lies, on the other hand, allow us to live how we want. And that's very convenient. Think of the incident we heard about a moment ago, when King Ahab wanted to go to war. He had set his heart on that. And so Ahab preferred to listen to people who told him he should do what he wanted to do. And he found loads of prophets ready to tell him that. Ahab didn't care about hearing the truth. That's why he tried to avoid listening to Micaiah. Because Micaiah always told the truth, whether it was convenient for Ahab or not. And Ahab's attitude to the truth has been shared by countless people all through history. Think of another example. Think of the basic teaching of Scripture that there is a God who has revealed himself through Scripture. If I want to live any way that I like, that basic truth is very inconvenient. Because the existence of a God who explains himself and tells us his will for our lives, if I accept that truth, then I cannot live any way that I want. I'm accountable to God to live as he says. And that's why many people have found it much more convenient to deny the existence of God. Or at least to deny that he has ever revealed himself. Aldous Huxley was a famous philosopher who rejected God. And he was very, very open about his reasons for doing that. He said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. 
consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. When Huxley talks there about no meaning, he's saying no God who gives meaning. And his point is, it's convenient not to believe in God, because then you and I can live as we like. And Huxley went on to admit, with again great honesty, the reason he personally wanted to be free of God was because he wanted to be free of morality. He didn't want anything to interfere with his personal sexual freedom. And funnily enough, that connection between abandoning Scripture and the desire for sexual freedom is a very common one. I've noticed that every couple of years, a high-profile Christian will announce that they don't believe the Bible anymore. And then they will add the news that they're leaving their spouse because they find somebody else. I'm not saying those two things always go together, but very, very often they do. And of course, what has happened is the person has set their heart on swapping the spouse they have for a different one. They know very well that Scripture forbids that, so Scripture becomes for them inconvenient at which point they conveniently decide, I don't believe the Bible anymore. I've lost my faith. That way, along with Aldous Huxley, they can do what they want to do. Sticking with the truth is not easy because lies are convenient. That's why many will follow lies. It's why lies are popular. It's also why lies are so profitable. Verse 3 says the false teachers are motivated not by wanting to help people. They're motivated, Peter says, by greed. They exploit the people who listen to them and follow them. There's money to be made in telling people what they want to hear. Keep that in mind Next time you hear someone denying the truth of Scripture. So every day you and I have a choice to make. Are we going to stick with God's Word and live according to God's Word? That's our choice, and Peter knows the choice is not easy. It's not easy because it will often make us unpopular. And it's not easy because we often feel like going against God's Word. But Peter wants us to see that sticking with the truth is worth it because following lies leads to destruction. That word destruction has already come up in verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, Peter said the false teachers are bringing swift destruction on themselves. In verse 3, he said, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. 
This letter has already told us to consider the future. And now it tells us there are two possible futures for us to consider. In chapter 1, we heard about the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now we hear about the other possibility, destruction. But of course, as Peter is writing this, destruction has not arrived for the false teachers in his day. They're alive and well. So now Peter takes us back in history to show examples of destruction arriving. He gives three examples. First, in verse 4, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Peter doesn't give much detail as to what he has in mind there, but most commentators agree he's referring to an incident mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 tells us, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, there are different views on what that means, but the sons of God seems to be a reference to angels. And apparently what happened was, although angels were forbidden by God to mate with human beings, some of them decided to take what was forbidden to them. It's almost like an angelic repetition of the sin of Adam and Eve. You remember God's word to Adam and Eve was, enjoy this beautiful garden that I've made for you. It's all for your enjoyment. Just avoid that one single tree because it will lead to death. But the serpent said to Eve, nah, take the fruit of the tree. You'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. And it seems something similar went on in the minds of the angels. God's word says we can't have human women, but that word feels awfully restrictive because human women are what we want. But Peter says those angels took what they wanted. They didn't stick with God's word, And right now, they are chained in hell until Judgment Day, when things are going to get even worse for them. That's Peter's first example. The next example he gives follows right on after the last one in the book of Genesis. In verse 5, he says, God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Put yourself for a moment in Noah's position. Not just Noah, but the seven other members of his family. God's word to Noah was highly inconvenient for Noah. We have to assume the ark God told him to build was not only an incredibly difficult thing to build, it was also unique. It's not like Noah had ever seen one before. That's because there'd never been any need for an ark capable of surviving a worldwide flood. A worldwide flood had never come along before. So Noah was called 
to stake everything on a massive venture that no one else was interested in. Because this ark building thing did not catch on. Today we would say it didn't capture the public's imagination. Peter says Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but nobody was listening. We mustn't underestimate how hard it was for Noah and his family to stick with God's word. But here's the punchline to Noah's story. Sticking with God's word was worth it. Because the world was destroyed by a flood. And only the people who stuck with God's word were saved. Until the day of the flood, the ark must have looked like the biggest waste of effort. What a fool Noah was. But when the flood came, the ark protected Noah and his family just like God said it would. While all the people who find God's word just too inconvenient to bother with, well, they find out the hard way God's word might seem inconvenient, but it never fails. It is always true. The writer Flannery O'Connor said, The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. The people of Noah's day discovered that to their great cost. Peter's last example is also from the book of Genesis. You can read it in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. The pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were notoriously sinful. And God destroyed them, burning them to ashes, as Peter says in verse 6. And ever after, the destruction of those two cities has stood as a warning of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is a little preview of eternal judgment. It is proof that following lies leads to destruction. But the history of Sodom and Gomorrah also gives proof that sticking with the truth is worth it. Because living in the city of Sodom, there was a righteous man named Lot. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, you might raise an eyebrow or even two eyebrows when you read Lot being called a righteous man. That's because Lot was a pretty flawed guy. But then again, so was Abraham. So was Moses. So was David. In fact, flawed human beings are the only human beings God has to work with. We saw in chapter 1 of this letter, through faith in Jesus, we are given power to grow more like Jesus. He's the only spotless man, human, and he's the Son of God. And although we can grow more like him, we will remain flawed until the day we meet Jesus. So it's no big surprise that Lot was flawed just like the rest of us. 
And the Bible doesn't try to hide Lot's flaws. In fact, it's because of the Bible we know about his flaws. And Peter isn't trying to deny them. The key point about Lot is that when the angelic messengers arrived in Sodom with a word from God telling Lot to flee, Lot fled. That's the key point about him. And Lot tried to convince his sons-in-law to do the same. He passed on the word from God that the city was going to be destroyed because of its sin. But Genesis tells us Lot's sons-in-law laughed at him. They thought the message from God was too inconvenient to take seriously. They stayed while Lot fled. For all of his flaws, he stuck with God's word. And he was rescued. While the rest were destroyed. Along with Lot's sons-in-law, the people of Sodom discovered that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. And so, Peter says in verse 9, if this is so, if we take these three examples to heart, we will see that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The godly will face trials, of course. They will go through trials. That's why sticking with the truth can be so hard. In the short term, it often doesn't seem to pay off. But those who stick with God's word can be sure of rescue in the end. They will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. While those who abandon God's word might seem to benefit from that abandonment. They might seem to prosper in the short term. But, Peter says, on the day of judgment, they will experience the reality that following lies leads to destruction. In verse 10, Peter brings us back to where we started. He has shown us the two futures we have to keep in mind, a future of judgment or a future of rescue from judgment. And now at the end, he reminds us of the choice, the choice that we have to make every day. Will we stick with God's word or will we decide God's word is too inconvenient? Will we instead choose to follow the corrupt desire of the flesh? Will we decide to despise authority? Peter's talking there about God's authority. Because he is God, he truly knows what's best for us. Now when another human being tells us they know what's best for us, we get suspicious, probably rightly so. But when the God of the universe tells us he knows best, he is simply telling the truth. We might not like that truth, but we are wise to accept it and stake our lives on it. 
Because if we turn away from God's word, we are choosing destruction. So this week, let's make the commitment that we will stick with God's word. No matter how inconvenient it seems, no matter how unpopular it makes us at home or at work, let's commit that we will stick with God's word. Even when our own desires are pushing us in a different direction. Maybe to cheat or get revenge or to give up on loving and caring for that person who annoys us. Let's stick with God's word when it comes to sexual purity. Even when our own desires encourage us to forget purity and self-control. And let's remember too, this God who calls us to trust him, he has also shown that he cares. He rescued Noah. He rescued Lot. And he has rescued us by sending his son to die for us. Yes, he is the God who brings judgment on disobedience and sin. We can count on that. But praise God, when we cling to Jesus Christ, we can also count on rescue from judgment. Because Jesus rescues you and me just as surely as the ark rescued Noah and his family. A couple of weeks ago we had a song that I said could be a theme song for Second Peter. And we're going to close by hearing that song again this morning. We belong to the day. Oh!
Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word amen Thank you. 